Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi there, I'm pop culture journalist Dyer Oxley, and while I'm from the Northwest, you don't have to be to enjoy Northwest Nerd Podcast, because the geek community is vast and diverse, and just like a Comic-Con, there are many crossroads of fandom. You add all that up, and you get Northwest Nerd, reporting on the people behind the passions and the stories that make us nerds. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Before today's episode, we want to take a second to thank a couple of our Patreon supporters. Patreon is super important to us at The Sartorial Geek. It's the way that we fund everything that we do from keeping the website up and running to releasing this podcast every week. We want to thank Lisa, Paula, Jess, Audrey, Wendy, and Julia this week, as well as everyone else who is supporting us at patreon.com slash sartorialgeek. We couldn't do any of this without you, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the Sartorial Geek Podcast. I'm Jordan Denae, and we are here for the very first time, I think, with a father-son team. We have Andrea and Roberto Molinari. How are you both? Doing very well. And so you co-create The Shepherd. Can you tell us a little bit about that and like how you got started and what it's like working <laughs> as a family? Because I imagine that's sort of an interesting dynamic. Okay. So those, yeah, those are a couple different questions going on at the same time. But uh, I guess, you know, best place to start is literally at the start. The inspiration for uh, for The Shepherd actually came from a nightmare that my dad had about me when I was like 16 years old. Basically, fairly straight edge, all that kind of stuff. wasn't like a really big worry, but dad had this dream in which I died of a drug overdose. And then it kind of goes on from there. Like that's really the start of it. And then, you know, it kind of turns into this kind of uh, nightmare in the afterlife yeah, it's been a while since I've actually talked about this stuff. Well, <laughs> basically, nightmare happens. I, you know, I die. Dad starts to feel himself losing it. Feels like I'm calling out to him from the other side. There's something wrong, and I haven't transitioned properly into the afterlife. Eventually, drives Dad to this point where he feels like he has to take his own life to go into the afterlife to save me. And then that's where things start to get, you know, interesting from there. Yeah. Wow. Well, but that's an actual, like he's saying, is that's an actual nightmare that I had about him. And I woke up very much upset, you know, breathing heavily, sweating. And, uh, you know, I really didn't know what to make of it. It took me about two days before I could work up enough nerve to tell him about it. Because I'm wondering, is this some kind of a portent? Is this some kind of something warning me? You know, and uh, his whole reaction to it was, Dad, that's so cool. And I'm like, <laughs> freaking not cool. This is like the 180 degrees from what would be cool. And, uh, but he, he really felt like that we needed to do something with this story from the very beginning. And he really had a focus that I didn't have is, I mean, he really felt that it needed to be a graphic novel. I mean, we, we'd always been comic book fans, but he really felt that it needed to be a graphic novel. And he was kind of like the impetus behind that, making that happen. He kind of nagged me until, you know, I had some spare time for my work and went ahead and we sat down and, you know, banged it out. Um, a little bit of uh, context for this that I realized I've actually, I don't think I've ever mentioned this in any interview that we've ever done about this stuff, is that dad had just come off of like, you know, recently before that, 
writing kind of like this uh, Daredevil story. Like, uh, you know, there was supposed to be a comic book and stuff like that. There was like potential that it could have actually gotten picked up. There was like, you know, a little bit of a dance here and there. And then, you know, it's hard to get into Marvel, obviously. So nothing ended up happening. But I'd read it and I liked it. So it was kind of like, okay, let's do a comic book then. The one that we can actually get published because it's going to be ours. I don't have kids, but I think I have the same reaction to that nightmare. Like, this is the worst thing ever. But it's such a great idea to take something like that and realize the potential for that being a really cool story and then just writing it. That's so awesome. It really was upsetting. You know, it was so realistic. And it wasn't just, you know, a dream where he died. And, you know, that's it. It was really, if you can imagine like a roller coaster, his death is just the beginning of the nightmare. It was, you know, the funeral, the aftermath, the grieving process, the feeling that I'm, that he's trying to call out to me, all that. And then the pursuit of him into the afterlife, decision to pursue him in the afterlife and encountering this, the things that happen, you know, in there. And one of the things we really tried to do with our first volume of The Shepherd is really try to capture that story try to be as faithful to that you know nightmare that dream as much as i as i could and um it really was a very powerful experience and i i think that it really has kind of that horror of that dream is kind of realized itself in that book and i mean i've had people like i had one gentleman who was actually a podcaster and his son had died of a drug overdose and he said that um all the things that the character expresses or things that he had actually gone through himself uh, in the grieving process of, you know, the aftermath of losing his son. So I really felt like that it had some authenticity to it because a lot of it, I think, was very much grounded in the fact that Bertel and I have always been very close. Um, he was my, my oldest child. I had him when we were, I think it was 20, 27, something like that. And, um, you know, I was in my doctorate program he was a little kid running around and I'm literally putting him down for nap and then rushing off to read a scholarly article. Oh my God. <laughs> That's amazing. He gets up from his nap and I'm busily taking notes while he's playing. And then when I put him down for his afternoon nap and I read my second article, you know, and I'm literally juggling my research <laughs> around his nap times. When he was two years old, he literally was running around saying, I can't play with you right now because I have to go write my dissertation. <laughs> how many, how many times he was literally saying that it was like how many times did you hear me say that to him right <laughs> but you know that we're us being around each other all that time really built up a bond and i mean i think you know fathers and sons have bonds anyway but i was kind of like his primary caregiver early on so that really kind of cemented things so that the trauma of that dream was that much more overwhelming for me and I, I really was scared by it, to be quite honest. Uh, and it, like I said, I wanted to just as soon sweep it under the rug and forget it. Beryl would not let me do that. I wasn't worried that I was going to die of a drug overdose. That wasn't something on my horizon. I guess that does make it a lot less, yeah, ominous. And you're like, this is not going to happen. Let's just write a cool story. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it'd be like uh, it'd be like me having like a premonition of me falling off the Eiffel Tower. I've never been outside of America. Like, right. I'm really not worried about it. <laughs> So had you two like done a project like this together before or had you written other things together before? So we, this was the first time that we actually sat down and did anything like this. I had offered, I mean, I guess it's actually not a hundred percent true. Like back when dad was writing like uh, his first published work or not first published work, sorry, first uh, creative published work, Climbing the Dragon's Ladder, which is uh, kind of like a 
uh, historical fiction, I guess you'd call it. Yeah. But historical fiction. And there was this See, like this probably, I probably helped him out, like not helped him out, but suggested things to him multiple times. But there's a scene where one of the characters is getting martyred and I told him, hey, have this guy bite the bear's ear off. And like he ended up doing it. So like, well, that was technically probably our first collaboration. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, he's always been a reader. I mean, very early on, there was like a, it was a bit of a trick getting him into it. But once I got him into it, first, he really didn't like to read at all. But then I talked to his teachers when he was little. And I said, does it really matter what I read to him? And they said, no. And so I, I literally went to the comic book store and I bought a bunch of Justice League animated, Batman animated, Superman animated, because he was watching these cartoons, you know, X-Men Evolution. This is dating us in the 90s, of course. No, it wouldn't have been X-Men Evolution. It would have been the other, like the one before that. Because that X-Men Evolution, I, I want to say that was like when I was in like middle school and maybe no, that's probably true. There was like the, the 90s X-Men is what, what we're talking about. The one where like the powers didn't actually match up with the characters properly. And like there was just kind of really, really janky animation. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, those were the books I was reading to him. And, uh, you know, I think that got him hooked in reading. He started to read himself. And then before very long, he was reading everything and anything he'd get his hands on. So from that point on, I think he had a love of, of books like me. Um, like I said, I was a scholar. My background's in literature. It's ancient Christian literature and mythological stuff and religious literature of different religions as well of the, of the ancient world. So I was doing a lot of reading and still do a lot of reading. That's such an interesting like mashup too, because I don't know, maybe there are a handful of comics writers with that sort of background, but like, you know, having like all of that research and I guess you being there to sort of like glean some of that as a kid and then that tied with all of the, you know, more modern comics. That's a really cool influences that are kind of all all mashed together. I would definitely tell you that our influences for The Shepherd are definitely from the ancient world because I've always been fascinated with otherworldly journeys. This is very common. In fact, the oldest piece of Western literature is the Epic of Gilgamesh. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but it comes from Sumeria, which is like modern day Iraq. And uh, it includes a story like a flood story, like you would find in the Bible. And it also, what's interesting about it is the character Gilgamesh is essentially a superhero. He has like much stronger than the ordinary human being. In fact, when he plays, it describes him playing with the other human beings. He like breaks them. It'd be like Superman playing football with ordinary people. And so the people of that area, they end up praying to the gods that they would send him somebody who he could play with, you know. And uh, they end up sending him a character by the name of Inkadu, who is basically like a Tarzan-like character. He, he can talk to the animals. He's a man, but he lives in the wilderness and lives with the animals and communes with them and is able to run with them and, you know, that type of thing. And he and uh, Gilgamesh end up becoming great friends, go on adventures, all that stuff. And it's like the first superhero team up. And that's like, I don't know, 4,000, 4,500 years old, something like that, maybe more. So those are the kind of influences that I'm that I'm reading is, you know, these otherworldly journeys, they they go into the afterlife. Gilgamesh goes into the afterlife. So it's the earliest known literature of the Western world includes a journey in the afterlife. So it's very much a part of like the landscape, my literary landscape that I'm drawing on for the shepherd. And when we talk a lot about uh, those kinds of things. That's so cool. If anyone listening is like interested in possibly writing with either their parents or their kids, can you talk a little bit about like what it's like being a writing team? So for the writing team thing, like that's probably going to come up to personalities a lot. Like I don't really have any interest in writing with anyone else. If I was going to collab 
like on a project, like writing wise with other people, I would probably do my part, which is like, I don't know, maybe I'd help them with plots or whatever. And then I would be kind of like out. I don't really want to hash out the details with like most people like dad and I gel really well. Most of the time we're on the same page. Like whenever we're like, you know, talking about like kind of what we want to do with certain characters, like character arcs, like what we have like for expectations, things like that. I don't know that like the only serious disagreement that we ever had was like whether or not the characters were going to kill. And I ended up coming around to his point of view on it, which is that they don't. Not like the living anyway. I mean, I guess that's the only way you can work together. But I, I'm sure not every <laughs> set of writing partners or even every family works together that well. So that's great that you're like mostly on the same page about things. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if you go into it by with the assumption that you don't have all the answers and that you're honestly open to what the other person has to say, you know, I mean, like my thing is I'm willing to take any idea that Roberto has. It just needs to make sense, like within the larger, you know, like how does that idea fit into the larger landscape of the world we built for these characters? Like the behaviors that they have, you know, does this fit into that? And if it does, then tell me more, you know, and let's see how we can chart that out. Um, and I think if you go in with that attitude, if you're capable of going in with that attitude, then I think you really can collaborate. But I would think that that's true for any collaboration. You know, if you're not willing to really hear what another person has to say, um, I'll just use this as an example. You know, um, one thing that you learn when you work on graphic novels or comic books is that you are, you as a writer are telling the story with a team. So the writer is not the only person telling the story. The artist, in a very real sense, is helping you tell that story. And sometimes the artist will take things in a different direction than you necessarily intended them. But you have to have enough humility to say, that's a better idea. Like in the second volume that we work on, which is called The Path of Souls, there is a particular, the way that the book ends, I had charted out a particular ending for it. And uh, my artist who was doing that segment of the book said, you know, I really don't think that that works very well. And I said, oh, okay. So I was like, okay, uh, well, what do you have in mind? He said, well, I've got some ideas. Would you mind if I just write them out for you? And I said, yeah, go ahead, write them up. So he wrote them up. I read them and I was like, oh, damn, these are actually better than mine. So I said, well, I'm not stupid. I'm good. If this is a better idea, that the whole idea is to produce the best quality story you can. And you need to have kind of an openness to what your team is telling you and really let them in on the whole creative process and value their their input on it. Um, because a lot of times they see the story in a different way and can add things to it that you never saw. You know, you never saw in the story as potential. So that's something that I think is a lesson to be learned when you do graphic novels or comic books anyway. Do you exclusively write together or are you doing any of your own separate projects too? Um, I did some work with an independent title called Johnny Phantasm. Uh, the writer's name is Evan Posios. And they asked me, the team asked me to come in and help them write a story, which I did. And that was a good experience, you know, but it's like when you do that, you don't own that character. So you are very much in a different position um, where you're more of providing suggestions and just saying, Hey, you know, I don't have the final say on this. This is not, you know, so I have to have the humility to say, okay, I'm going to run this up the flagpole, you know, advocate for my point of view and then see where the chips fall. It, in a lot of ways, what it forces you to do, and this is, I think really important is that you, you take the approach. This is what I think. 
and here is why. And if you can't, and here is why very well, then maybe your point of view shouldn't be the way that it goes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Forces you to kind of be able to, to articulate the reason why you think this particular path is the best one. I love that. And then Roberto, you have a trilogy that you're working on too, right? Yeah, I'm working on uh, basically fantasy prose. The first book is written and it's gone through multiple rounds of editing. I'm like two thirds of the way through, you know, this latest edit. And then after that, I'm going to find basically like, you know, just someone who's like a grammar Nazi, send it out to them so that they can root out whatever errors I've got left. And then that'll basically be ready to go for submissions. And that is an illustrated novel, just to point out, is that it isn't just a prose novel. It is an illustrated, beautifully illustrated novel, actually. Yeah, the, the artist that I've got from that, her name is Jess Hera. She's Sapro artist on uh, Instagram. She's, if you look her up, she's like, uh, she's extremely talented. That's yes, awesome. Her style is more fine art than cartoony. I love that. Andrea, you're also the editorial director at Scout Comics, which is like related, but a different job too. <laughs> that is a great joy for me. Because I taught at the university, I taught for Creighton University and Barry University outside of uh, Miami for 12 and a half years. And the majority of that, seven and a half of that was at the grad level, which I loved. I love grad school. The reason why I love grad school is because if you're there, you want to be there. You know, whereas an undergraduate, that is up in the air. But in grad school, they do want to be there. And, uh, you know, I ended up the uh, program that I was teaching in closed and it's just a very tough market out there to get, get jobs teaching. And when you do, it's usually just adjunct stuff. And so being a, being a university professor out of work, you know, the opportunity to work as an editorial director in a lot of ways, each of these creative teams is like a graduate student team putting together a project. So it's very committed people, very high level conversations uh, very talented writers and artists and letterers and colorists and working together and, you know, basically working as, you know, to hash out and take that project and make it the best it can be. And with Scout, you know, I have creative teams from all over the world that I'm working with. I have teams from Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, Italy, Spain, Germany, Hungary, Canada, the United Kingdom, uh, lots of Americans, as you would expect. And it's a real joy to get to meet these people and you end up becoming friends with them. I mean, I've, uh, one of the guys that I've edited for, his name is Massimo Rossi. He's done a lot of publishing for Scout, Caliber Comics, Behemoth, Action Lab, Chapter House. There's a lot of different places where, and then various European places, you know, we're talking about going over to Italy to, to visit them and actually attend a comic convention there in Italy together. And, uh, you know, that's a friendship that's just blossomed, you know, with me working as an editor. And so it's a real joy. And the cool thing about being an editor is like, I try to explain to you what it's like. When Remember when you were a little kid and you got a chance to go over to a friend's house and play with their toys? Think about that. Okay. You know, it's like, that's a whole new set of toys. And uh, that's amazing. Remember as a little kid, you know, five, six, seven years old, you get this opportunity to play with all these brand new toys. Well, you know, I have 70 teams that I'm working with. Wow. And so I've got 70 sets of new toys. And, you know, that's everything from horror to sci-fi to military history to, you know, mystery, all kinds of different things. I mean, I've got a book that I'm putting the finishing touches on that is, it's called King Jira. King Jira is a, um, you know, a knockoff on Godzilla, 
where the character is basically destroying the city because he's hungry and is in search of pizza. <laughs> That's amazing. And it's a great, you should see the art on this thing. It kicks ass all over the place. It's a great, great piece of work. I, I'm convinced that we'll sell this thing left, right, and center. Beautiful book. And, you know, that's, so you get the, you really get an opportunity to expand your horizons, work with lots of different types of stories, and work with some really wonderful people that are very committed to their craft. I love that idea too. I've never heard the analogy of like playing with someone else's toys, but that I obviously can totally remember what that was like. And that's such a fun, like, I can tell just from hearing you talk about it, how much you love doing that. Because, you know, being an editor is not always easy or fun. And I think it's probably a lot more fun for everyone (laughs) if you go into it with that sort of like energy and that sort of joy. But that is true. Like you get to see all these creative teams and be a part of what they're doing and so many different people. That's really cool. And they have ideas like you wouldn't believe. Some of these ideas, like um, we have one of the books that I'm working on is called Captain Suave. And Captain Suave is kind of like a modern day Don Quixote. And uh, the main character is a homeless man living in Cleveland. And he imagines himself to be a golden age superhero. And uh, he actually goes around and tries to make a difference in the world that he's in. And the way that they've done this, the artist, who's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And the writer is too. I mean, the, this is going to, I think, win awards this book. But when they draw it, like in his imagination, when he is a superhero, they draw it in a golden age style. And then when it's just ordinary real world Cleveland, it's like this kind of a watercolor type of art that has kind of that dingy, you know, midwinter kind of slush on the ground. Anybody who's listening to this who lived up in the Midwest knows what I'm talking (laughs) about. I grew up in Michigan, so I have a front row seat to what that's all about. You know, it's where the snow is kind of dingy and nasty after, you know, not the first snow, but, you know, it's after it's been on the ground for a while. That's such a cool idea. Yeah, but a really amazing book. And it's like you you read the script, you you find yourself crying, laughing, railing against the injustices of the world. It's like it touches every human emotion that you can have. And I think when literature does that, That's the very reason why we create this stuff is to create stories that will touch the person's soul and make them think about the world that they live in and the world that they would like to live in. That's amazing. I love that. And I think the story that you're both writing together sounds incredible. All of the stories that you're editing sounds super cool. When people are listening and they want to know like where to find you and the projects you're currently working on and and what you'll work on later, what's the best way for people to follow both of you? and your projects? Well, for The Shepherd, it would be theshepherdcomic.com is our website and The Shepherd Comic on Instagram and Facebook. Those are probably our best places for people to follow us. And of course, with Scout Comics, the scoutcomics.com. And you get a chance to see all the different titles that Scout's coming out with because Scout has sub-imprints as well. Like I'm The Shepherd is with a, a sub-imprint called Black Caravan, which specializes in horror and sci-fi. And there's some amazing ridiculously amazing titles that the guys uh that's joseph schmalke and rich woodall are the guys that are co-publishers of that imprint and then the other um you know main imprint that i work with is an imprint called scoot and scoot is an all ages imprint and and i'm just absolutely in love with that one too it's um you know creating the comics that we hope that we can give to little children and they'll fall in love with comics you know like the first time that we read a comic and we fell in love with it I want to create that again and help to generate the next generation of comic book readers. 
I love that. Thank you both so much for chatting with me. This is so cool. And I hope lots of people read The Shepherd after this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to our episode. If you want to hear more like this, you can subscribe to the Sartorial Geek Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or a review or head to patreon.com slash sartorialgeek. Thank you so much. Have a great day.